Good morning. I'm Anna Marie, and it's time again for Focus. Today, we talk to Dr. Beth Ann Mallow. She's the director of the Sleep Division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. First of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Today, we have several different angles to talk about when we're talking about sleep and lack of sleep. Apparently, women have a lot more issues with getting to sleep and staying asleep and having sleep disorders of some sort than men do. What is the current situation? I mean, like how much sleep do we need and how many of us are getting the right amount of sleep? Can we just start there? Sure. So the recommendations from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and other groups have said that adults really need to get seven hours, ideally more, but the minimum is seven hours because when we don't sleep well, it affects so many different things in our lives and our health. What kind of problems does that cause if you don't get enough sleep? First of all, I think we all know how we feel when we haven't slept. We're grumpy, we're grouchy, we might tend to send a nasty email, a snippy email, right? Yeah. And there have actually been studies that have shown that the parts of the brain that control what we call executive function or emotional regulation are not working properly when we don't get enough sleep. See, I noticed that it seems like everything's more difficult when you're tired. And I've had friends who were like really upset and they were exhausted, but they were upset. And I just remember telling them, it'll be easier in the morning. It'll be better in the morning after you get a good night's sleep. It's really true. They've done studies now with brain MRIs where they can look at how different parts of the brain are functioning. They've done these experiments. When people are sleep deprived, parts of the brain that are involved in fear and anxiety and worry are ramped up. And the parts of the brain that are involved in what I said, emotional regulation, control, executive function, that keep those anxiety and worry centers kind of under control and in check, those connections are weaker when you're sleep deprived. And instead, your fear and anxiety centers tend to connect with the parts of the brain that are involved in lashing out and saying a nasty comment or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. it's really true. Sleep is an amazing way to reset the brain. It seems almost like that might be part of what causes morning road rage a little bit because people are, are still half asleep and they didn't get enough sleep. I think morning road rage, which I have to admit, being in Nashville is a lot better than a lot of northern cities I've lived in. It's better? It's not as bad here. I think that some of those other cities are quite driven, but I think that, yes, morning road rage could very well be people being sleep deprived, not being fully awake yet, and just overreacting to things that really they shouldn't be. Really? Exactly. Okay, so let's look at some of the causes for people not getting enough sleep. Because other than I'm not going to bed at the proper time, what are some of the other things that keep us from getting enough sleep? There's certainly a category of sleep disorders, and we can talk about that. Sleep apnea, excessive worrying, insomnia. I mean, those do exist. But the biggest problem, I think, is just what's going on in our lives. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb because it's been said that he only needed six hours of sleep to function. He was one of these remarkable people who's a short sleeper and just doesn't need a lot of sleep. And he needed the light bulb so he could do stuff, you know, when everybody else was asleep. But that really has wreaked havoc in some ways on our society because we not only have light 24-7, which interferes with our body's ability to produce a natural hormone called melatonin Mm -hmm. that you may have heard of. 
But the cell phones, the ability to look at information any time of the day or night, everything that's open, shopping, you know, everything that, that you can do at all sorts of times, homework that our kids have. I mean, everything can contribute to when we should be ready to go to bed mm-hmm. at 9 or 10 at night. Instead, we tend to stay up because we have all of those distractions. So say we manage to turn off the lights and turn off the tablets or the smartphones and go to bed. How long should it take us to fall asleep? Probably five to 10 minutes, ideally, to fall asleep. And if it doesn't, does that mean we've done something wrong or there might be something wrong? Does that mean to look back and go, did I have caffeine too late in the day? Or what keeps us from falling asleep? Some people say that I just can't fall asleep. Yeah, so there's a lot of different things. And the environmental, as you're alluding to, is one of the biggest. So caffeine use. Caffeine is a stimulant, so it will keep us awake. Alcohol is interesting. Alcohol may put us to sleep, but then it'll wake us up a few hours later. It's oh, almost really? like we're withdrawing. Yeah, even a glass, one glass of wine close to bedtime. In a sense, you're withdrawing from the alcohol and it can wake you up in the middle of the night. So that's a biggie. And a lot of people might use alcohol to try to fall asleep because they can have trouble falling asleep. So, Oh, so that can make their problem worse. Yes. So, so I fell asleep, but it woke me up. Yes. Other things, having enough exercise during the day, being physically active is so important to promote sleep at night. And it's one of the best things you can do to promote sleep at night. I think we forget about that and we try everything else. We'll start taking sleeping pills and we just didn't move enough during the day. Yes. And sleeping pills, as you know, can have side effects of their own. Mm -hmm. So really trying to focus on the natural things that you can do. The big things I recommend are cutting out the screens and everything else that goes along with it, like emails from work that might worry you or you're trying to solve problems at night that you can't solve or the caffeine or the exercise. Those are oftentimes the three areas that I focus on. If you're just joining us, this is Focus. I'm Anna Marie and our guest today is Dr. Beth Ann Mallow. She's the director of the sleep division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. We're talking about sleep and sleep disorders and lack of sleep. There are so many of us who are running around all the time, sleep deprived and exhausted. So let's say, doctor, you're going to lay out the ideal conditions in one's life to give yourself the very best chance of getting good sleep. What would that day look like and what would that night look like? That's a great question. First of all, this is ideal, right? Ideal. Okay. The person has a stimulating but not super stressful job where they have complete control. Oh, oh that was a stretch. <laughs> I'm sure your listeners are loving this right they're now. They're like, yeah. And uh, there are no difficult people at work. But seriously, getting through the day, feeling good about what you've accomplished, feeling fulfilled, even if you have conflicts with difficult, challenging people or situations, feeling like you've handled them the best you could. Okay, so you get through the workday. Get through the workday getting home, trying to put your work behind you, right? So that you can focus on kind of winding down and getting ready for sleep. So having dinner, I would say if you like an alcoholic beverage, it's okay, but don't have that alcoholic beverage too close to bedtime because that can interfere with your sleep that night. How long ahead of bedtime? I would say five hours. Okay. So you go to work, you work out, 
at yes. some point or you get exercise, yes. you take a walk? I would say the best time to do that is probably right before dinner because it's on a relatively empty stomach. You're exercising far enough away from bedtime that your body isn't going to be hyped up and stimulated. So come home from the very fulfilling job where you've handled stress well, work out, have a healthy dinner, right? Have socialize a, with your family. Have a glass of wine. Have a glass dinner. of wine if you want it. Yes. Yeah. And then in the evening, try to focus on things that are relaxing. Don't get into a heated discussion with your boss over email that you can't solve anyway until the next day. Right. Try to do relaxing things with your kids. And then also, as the night goes on, really try to wind down and turn off those devices. Ideally, turn off your devices an hour before bedtime. What do they do? I know there have been recent studies that find they really do affect our brain waves. So there's a couple of things. One is they emit something called blue light. And this is light that is extremely stimulating. Now, this is not bad light. This is good light at the right time. So in the morning, you want that light. In fact, you may have heard that some people, they recommend that you open open up all the curtains. Some people even who are depressed get light boxes to Mm -hmm. sit in front of. So blue light, which is blue spectrum light, which is the strongest part of the light spectrum for stimulating wakefulness is not bad. It's just you don't want that blue light close to bedtime because that will interfere with sleep. And it's in all TVs and all tablets and all phones. It's any devices like that. Yes, it's in all devices. And there is actually a way to, on your iPhone to turn off the color and that helps a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the best situation is to just try to turn off the devices an hour before bedtime and then do something like you can take a bath or drink hot decaffeinated tea or warm milk or read a book or do something else that doesn't involve those devices because it's basically the light as well as any content that's on the devices that can be stimulating. So you've gone through your work day, you've gotten some exercise, you've eaten a healthy dinner, maybe you have a glass of wine, you get on your tablet or your smartphone for a little bit, but then at least an hour before bed, all the devices go off. Correct. And then you maybe take a bath, take a shower, something relaxing, and then what? What does the bedtime environment look like for the perfect continued night sleep? And again, not everybody needs this, but if you have trouble sleeping, and I certainly do, what I've done, uh, dark room, making sure that you have a source of noise that's comforting. I like to put on a fan. That gives me the coolness of the room as well as gives me that kind of static noise that is very good because it kind of blocks out extraneous noises like a big truck going down the street or whatever. And that can disturb your sleep enough to wake you up. Exactly. And not everybody. But if you have a problem with sleep, think about these things. So the light level, the noise level, the temperature level of the room are all important to think about. A lot of people have allergies in Nashville, so rinsing out your sinuses before you go to bed, using a nasal strip to open up your sinuses, that oftentimes can be very effective for people. Keeping something by your bed, like a little pad that you can jot stuff down on if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're, you either have a great idea for some creative thing that you work on, or you need to tell your boss something or a coworker something in the morning, rather than lying there awake. I'm sure many of your listeners have wide awake trying to remember what they have to do. Yes. Just take a little pen light by your bed. You don't want a bright light, right? Because to you'll, wake you up you'll wake again. you up. But like a little pen light and just 
scribble down what you need. Or sometimes I'll just put a little book on the floor and then I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be like, there's a book here. What do I need to remember? Oh, and that works well, too. good. We're talking with Dr. Beth Ann Mallow, the director of the sleep division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Tell us how the sleep cycles work. Right. So the sleep cycles, normally we have four to six cycles a night, and we go through a variety of stages of sleep. We call it non-REM and REM sleep. And the reason we call it REM is rapid eye movement, and that's where our eyes go back and forth really quickly, and we oftentimes dream during that time. Right. And then everything else is non-REM. And there's different stages that go from one to three in terms of deepness of level. So we do this like four to six times a night. So does it go straight down and then straight back up or does it vary? It varies but ideally it goes down and then you hit a REM period after you're in your deep sleep. You'll go up light into light sleep, you'll hit your REM and then you'll repeat everything over again. And yes, these devices are very interesting because they use movement to track what stage of sleep you're in. They're not entirely accurate and the best way to know what stage you're in is to actually do a formal sleep study but that's problematic too, because then you're in a new environment, like a sleep lab, and you don't sleep normally. So we really still need to develop the technology to be able to do that in the home. And I think that's a very exciting area. But with that said, these trackers, I think, are good because people come to my clinic with their tracker saying, you know, I'm just not getting the sleep I really feel I should be getting. What can I do, doctor? And then I can go over with them what I just explained to your listeners about the noise and the light and the caffeine and everything else. So at least it's a step in the right direction. Yes. And it might help some people. Yes. Even though there's a lot of inaccuracies in those devices, rather than taking the tact of these devices are horrible, they're a waste of money or whatever, I look at them as this is a way for the public to engage in sleep and the conversation about sleep. And if they come to me or even I see somebody at a party and they say, hey, I'm just getting six hours. I don't know what to do. I look at that as a fabulous opportunity to educate them. That's good. I like that. We get attached to our devices and we are trying the best thing that we know how to do to try and get a better night's sleep. And so I appreciate that you let that just be an open for a conversation to learn a little bit more. So is it easier to wake up when you're in a lighter level of sleep? Is it like that you're lighter, meaning you're closer to waking up? Is that why you remember your dreams? Because you're... We tend to wake up either a light stage of non-REM sleep or out of REM sleep. And that's why we remember our dreams in the morning. We all dream. The people who remember their dreams are those who wake up close to having been in dream sleep because it's fresh in their minds. Oh, and so that's why sometimes it's harder to wake up because... You've awakened and you were deeply asleep. Correct. Like if the alarm goes off and you're in a deep level of sleep, you may not fully awaken. Mm -hmm. Some people actually, that kind of can provoke sleepwalking or other things because they're half awake, half asleep. So if you're genetically predisposed, like sometimes it runs in families where there'll be a noise or there'll be the sensation of needing to use the bathroom. And that will be a trigger that will set somebody up to go into like a sleepwalk episode. Oh my goodness. We're talking with Dr. Beth Ann Mallow, director of the sleep division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So we've found some things that keep people from getting a good night's sleep. We've created the perfect day and the perfect sleep environment. 
And what about if they've decided that they need to go ahead and talk to their doctor about getting some sort of a sleep aid? Right. Or if they've decided to take some sleep aid over the counter? What do you tell people who are like, you know, I just need to take something to sleep? Right. So my biggest thing is if somebody really feels like they're needing to take something to sleep, I want to make sure that there's no underlying medical problem that's waking them up or keeping them from going to sleep because I would hate to mask that problem. So I'll give you an example. Like people with sleep apnea, which is actually really common. They, they estimate now that 2 to 4% of the population has it. So it involves your airway closing up on you when you go to sleep at night so that you can't get a deep breath and you wake yourself up to breathe. So if somebody's waking up because they can't breathe, that's not something we want to treat with medication. That's something that we want to get to the root cause, diagnose and treat the problem with not breathing because that can have consequences for you know the heart, the lungs, the brain if you're not getting the oxygen you need. So what is the reason sleep apnea is so dangerous? What is that doing while we're on that topic? Yeah, sure. It's interesting. People don't die of sleep apnea, but they can be very sick or die of the consequences of sleep apnea. So for example, when you're not able to breathe at night because everything closes up, basically when you're awake, you can control your airway, but when you go to sleep, everything relaxes, your Mm -hmm. tongue falls back. You can have a big adrenaline rush that wreaks havoc on your blood pressure. Your heart has to work harder. Your lungs have to work harder. Even your brain is not getting the oxygen that it needs to be healthy. So you can have a stroke or heart attack or high blood pressure. And even people who don't have those things, they can have obesity and diabetes develop from just that adrenaline rush, because we're talking about this happening over and over and over again throughout the night. So that's why sometimes doctors who treat sleep apnea say that if you take care of the sleep apnea with perhaps a mask or what are they called? CPAP. CPAP is continuous positive airway pressure. And what it does, it's, it's actually very simple. It uses air, pressurized air that comes out of a little machine to open up the back of your throat and allow you to breathe normally. So it doesn't involve drugs. It doesn't involve surgery. One message for your listeners is it's gotten a lot more comfortable over the years. It used to be this big fat mask that went over your whole face, and now it can just go into your nostrils. It can be very minimalistic, and it is a lifesaver for a lot of people, not to mention that they feel better. You know, people have more energy. They sleep better at night. They're not grumpy and grouchy like we talked about. They'll have less road rage you know, if they're <laughs> yeah. on a CPAP. And it's possible that they will lose weight? Yes. Now, you still have to lose the weight. It takes effort to lose weight. So it's not like people go on CPAP and they wake up the next morning and they're 50 pounds lighter. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that people used to say to somebody with apnea, just go home and lose weight. And they can't because they're tired and their whole body metabolism changes when they have apnea. So when you go on a CPAP, at least it fixes your body metabolism. It fixes your hunger urges. You have more energy so you can go to the gym. So all those things are in your favor. You still have to work to lose the weight, 
But you have a lot of advantages on your side. I like how you put you have. So all those things are in your favor. Then it's not like you're stacking the deck against yourself Correct. because you're not getting enough sleep and it's caused all these other issues or because you have sleep apnea and it's caused all these other issues. It's almost like how could you possibly lose weight if you have all this other stuff stacked against exactly. you? Exactly. That's a common theme in sleep that it's not necessarily the whole answer. But it's a huge, important piece of the puzzle. So depression is like that, too. Or, you know, when we talk about the school start times, it's an important piece of the puzzle to keep in mind that could be playing a role in stacking the deck in your favor if you're getting the proper amount of sleep. Okay, school start times. I'm glad you brought that up because that's been a conversation that's ongoing here in the Nashville area. I know Williamson County, they're holding meetings on whether they should have the elementary school-aged kids start earlier and the high school-aged kids start later. So what kind of sleep do kids need and... What would this do if we had school start later for these kids? Right. So we focused on the high school kids and the middle school kids, and I'll I'll explain why. But I want to preface for your listeners that that doesn't mean that elementary school students shouldn't get enough sleep. They need to get sleep, too. So I'm actually a proponent of making school later for everyone, or at least not changing the elementary. I think we need to fix the middle school and high school, but not sacrifice the elementary in the process. And I think there are creative ways to do that. The reason that we're focusing on the high school students and middle school students, and this becomes such a big issue, is there's actually changes in the brain with puberty. And we all know that hormones change with puberty. It's like they just go crazy already. They do. But the hormone that people oftentimes forget about with puberty is melatonin. And melatonin basically falls as you go through puberty, and it also shifts later so that melatonin basically allows us to go to sleep, our own endogenous levels, the melatonin our body makes. And in teens, everything is shifted by about two hours. So they can't go to bed anymore at 8.39. Now they're going to bed at 11. And in some teens, it can be as late as midnight, 1 or 2 a.m. before they're really physically ready to go to sleep. And the problem with the school start times is if they have a start time of 7.20, they have to be up by 6, maybe even 5.30. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids are uh, boys and they can wake up at 6 and I don't know how they do it, but they can get out of bed and do everything in 20 minutes. But I know a lot of girls have to put on makeup, Mm -hmm. get dressed and whatever. It is crazy. So these kids are not getting the eight hours, eight to 10 hours that's recommended by American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the CDC, a variety of other organizations to be healthy during the day. Now, I do want to make the point that I made a moment ago that it's a piece of the puzzle. Right. You know, I think we'd be naive to say, you know, cell phones aren't playing a role. Homework isn't playing a role. Being extracurricular activity out might be playing a role. I mean, there's a lot of stresses our kids are under. Yeah. But I do feel that, first of all, I've seen teens in my sleep practice who do everything right. They get off the electronics and they avoid caffeine and they're very active and they still can't get to sleep on time because their brain is just different. I had no idea. I think most people don't know that. Yeah, it's very, very true. And the challenge too is that it's still a piece of the puzzle. So even if we work on getting kids off the cell phones and everything else, giving them that extra time in the morning 
to sleep in if they need it is huge. And a lot of people have been saying to us, they got to get ready for the adult world. They're going to have adult jobs. They're going to have to be up early. But if you look at the physiology, actually, when you become an adult, like 25, 26, 27, things shift back. So now we're able to go to bed earlier again. We're able to go to bed by 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. So the teens, I would say teenage years, maybe the early 20s, are the maximal time where you're really going to hit that wall and not be able to go to bed before 11 o'clock or even later at night. And it's not everybody, but it's a substantial number of teens who really struggle with this. And how does a lack of the proper amount of sleep affect your learning ability and your behavior? Yeah, there's work out there that has shown that your ability to focus, to pay attention, is definitely impaired when you haven't slept well. Oh boy, what what were you saying? <laughs> I mean, thank you for laughing. Sorry. <laughs> I think the behavior aspect and the emotional health, mental health aspect is really really huge too. And this is important because some school districts are already achieving really high levels of success academically, but unfortunately they have high rates of depression and I think that Really focusing on the emotional and mental health is so important because it's oftentimes neglected. And I think based on what we talked about earlier with the road rage, we really are emotional basket cases when we haven't gotten enough sleep. So that's my biggest concern, actually, in our teens, is making sure that they've got healthy emotional health and mental health, and then all the other things, the obesity, the diabetes, the inattention, the poor attendance, which can interact and interfere with lots of things at school. Yeah. Increased risk-taking behaviors are amplified when you haven't gotten enough sleep. So Really? Yeah. So bottom line, if you want to give your kid the best chance at not having depression, not having other emotional issues doing better in school, being able to make better decisions. You want to try and get them as much sleep as you can until or unless we change schedules for schools. Exactly. And I I wanted to put in one more thing. When they've looked at districts that have made the start time later for teens, a lot of people say, oh, they'll just stay up later and they'll get less sleep, but they actually get more sleep. People have shown, proven in these scientific studies that the kids are getting more sleep. Mm Mm-hmm. When you delay it, they go to bed at about the same time, but then they're able to sleep in a little longer. Are we seeing any difference in behavioral problems at school or other issues that uh, kids face? Are we seeing any difference in grades and graduation rates? Or is there anything else that we can measure? All of those things. There was one school district in Fairfax County, Virginia, where they found that when they increased sleep by just an hour, it made a big difference in their emotional health. This wasn't necessarily associated with the school start time change, yeah. but it shows you what giving kids the ability to get that extra hour of sleep or even 30 minutes of sleep could do for them. Because right now, a third of kids are getting the eight hours of sleep that's recommended. I mean, two-thirds are not. Two-thirds of high school kids are not. So one of the things that I have found helps me go to bed earlier because I can't sleep in later, as many adults can't. You can't sleep in later. You And kids in school, you got to be at a certain place at a certain time. For me, I don't know what triggered it, but I realized that I need to set an alarm to go to bed or to start getting ready for bed. So I set a couple of alarms. This is my alarm to make sure I go take a bath. And then this is my alarm to know I need to be in bed at this time because 
I'm going to piddle around and do something else or maybe stay on the screen for a while longer. So I have set alarms now when I need to go to bed. Or do you have other kind of practical tips that you could give people if they want to start making that change in their life? Yeah, I love that idea to set an alarm. I think that's a great idea. I think what I would tell people is be careful about trying to do this almost like cold turkey. Like if you're going to bed at midnight and you say, oh, I really need to start going to bed at 10. The brain is not going to allow you to start doing that. It's better to actually do it gradually, like say, all right, I'm going to go to bed at 10 to 12 tonight. And then, then, you know, next night I'm going to go to bed at 20 to 12. And then I'm going to go to bed at 1130 and just kind of gradually do it. And the brain will adjust and couple that with getting bright light in the morning, because that can help you. Believe it or not, bright light in the morning increases your ability to go to bed at night because it just helps change your whole sleep wake cycle. I totally get that because we come to work when it's still dark. And it feels like, oh, my gosh, it's so bright light in the morning. Yeah. You guys may want to invest in some light boxes. No, we will. Definitely. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. We're talking with Dr. Beth Ann Mallow, the director of the sleep division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. We'll post some information on our Facebook page so you can get more info if you want to ask questions. And we'll put some links. I do have one more thing, if that's okay. okay. Go ahead. Yeah. We have a Facebook page that we're really using to promote sleep in Tennessee. It's called Sleep Well Tennessee. Tennessee. Good. And we try to post articles on sleep. We're focused on our students, but we will post articles that really apply to parents as well to the whole life cycle. So if people are interested, it's easy to remember. It's called Sleep Well Tennessee. Sleep Well Tennessee. And we'll also put that link on our focus page so you can get it all right there. Also, we'll post a podcast so you can hear this interview again, because I think you're going to want to listen again and maybe share it with somebody that you know who is having a hard time getting enough sleep. Make sure you join us again next week. Thank you, Dr. Mallow. Thank you so much. I'm Anna Marie, and that's Focus.